Well, today we get to talk about heaven. <laughs> it's nice to have a fun day every now and then, right? Today's that day. Now, there's a lot about heaven that we can only imagine. And so right from the start, I think we need to admit that God has left us with a great deal of mystery when it comes to our eternal future. Faith is required to believe what God has revealed. Nothing more, nothing less. Why is this parameter important? Because when we mix our own ideas with God's revelation, we wind up with empty religious theories that may or may not be true. Religion that may or may not be true isn't worth a whole lot. And the fact is that man's ideas about the things of God are usually all wrong because God doesn't think like we do. His plan is deeper and wider and more complex than we can possibly imagine. Another thing I want to say before I get into the subject at hand is that I am limiting myself in this message mostly to today's heaven. In other words, I'm not talking about the new heaven and new earth that will be coming with Jesus when he returns. That's when we get uh, our new transformed bodies made to last forever. That's when this place is recreated and restored to paradise once again when Jesus returns. But instead, I'm going to talk about today's heaven, meaning the heaven that exists now and the place where your soul will go to be with Jesus when you die, that is, if you know him. I will limit my scope for this relatively short sermon, so for you scholars, just please uh, remember that I'm not even attempting to discuss the tribulation period or the millennial reign of Christ or even any eschatology at all, much to your chagrin, I'm sure, but I prefer to preach on things that are clear. And besides, we ought to understand not only what is coming someday, but what is now. Today I'm going to talk about the heaven of now. When it comes to today's heaven, we can be certain about several things, but we should also be honest that we don't know what we don't know, or as the Bible puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, now we see things imperfectly as in a poor mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God knows me now. In other words, we can only understand so much until we get to the other side and see things from God's vantage point. <clears throat> that said, there are wonderful promises about heaven that we can know right now. How can we know? Well, if it's clearly revealed in Scripture, we can know. As Jesus said, God's Word is truth, or as Paul put it, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. So how can we be sure what is actually true about today's heaven? Since nobody here has been there, we can only be sure about those things which God has revealed in Scripture. What has He revealed? Lots of things, <clears throat> but for the sake of time, let's look at five biblical truths about today's heaven. Before I do that, one more caveat today. I see several new faces out there today. If you're coming in with that filter that says, if, these, if they're topical, I'm not staying. 
Okay, today's a topical sermon. It's not usually. Most of the time I preach through books of the Bible and more expository. Every once in a while I throw in a little topical sermon here and there. So, you know, give me another chance if you came in with that uh, little filter already set up. All right? I also don't usually use the NLT. Just using it today. Usually I'm the NASB 95. So there you go. Give me another chance. Anyway, this is what we deal with as pastors today. It's just, I mean, everybody's mad. You know what I mean? I mean, some of you are like, yeah, that's kind of the way I felt when I came here. Thankfully, you walked in in the middle of a series on Hebrews or something, right? And you're like, oh, that's what I want. Okay, well, that's normally kind of what we do. All right. Way too much. Said way too much. Bevan, just slap me later. What can we be sure about when it comes to heaven? First of all, heaven is up. I know that doesn't sound very profound, and at first glance, it doesn't seem to be a truth that has much real-life impact, but let's look at it a little deeper. Psalm 123.1 says, Lord, I look up to you, up to heaven, where you rule. We know that Jesus often looked up toward heaven when he prayed. Mark 6.41 is one example where the Bible says, Jesus took the five loaves and two fish and looked up toward heaven. And he asked God's blessing on the food. The general idea that heaven is up is found throughout Scripture. This is not some sort of pagan concept. This did not come from some ancient human religion. No, we actually get this from the Bible. Heaven is up. But what does this mean that matters for us today? For starters, at least on this side of the turn of Christ, I think this could be literal. Sure, heaven may even be literally up from here. After all, heaven is a literal place. Heaven exists someplace, and it definitely isn't down inside the earth, which kind of leaves us with up. And you know, it just seems kind of helpful to have an idea of where heaven is located, generally. Since the Bible pictures an upward heaven, perhaps it is located just beyond the created universe, or however many universes there are in creation. It's possible. Allegorically, C.S. Lewis pictured heaven as another planet, one without sin. Some of you might remember the 80s singer Belinda Carlisle, who referred to heaven as a place on earth. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Repeat 12 times. (laughs) But no. That's one thing we can rule out. Heaven is definitely not a place on earth. Heaven is up. Who knows, maybe science fiction got this one right, and heaven is an undiscovered country just beyond the outer rim, if you will. After all, that would definitely be up from our perspective. Now, how far away would heaven be if this were the case? Currently, it's impossible to imagine any method of travel by which we could ever reach the edge of our galaxy, to say nothing of our universe. Even if we could travel at the speed of light, we could never reach the end of our galaxy, that is, unless we had about 90,000 years to light to travel at the speed of light. And that's a speed that seems impossible for a body of matter. The distance to the edge of our galaxy not to mention our universe, is completely infinite to us. It is unimaginable 
That said, heaven is an infinite kind of place. So who knows, maybe it's somewhere out there. Remember Jacob's ladder and the stairway to heaven he envisioned? Yeah, remember, it went up. (laughs) More importantly, though, I think when we read in the Bible that people like Jesus thought of heaven as up, the idea is probably less literal and more of a symbolic way to demonstrate that heaven is somewhere else, somewhere beyond that it is outside this physical realm, beyond this creation, that heaven transcends all that we know or even can know. I've said it is possible that heaven is literally up, like almost as if you could fly there with enough time, but that's not really what I think. I'd say heaven is more transcendent than all of that. When the Bible envisions heaven as up, it probably means mostly that it is beyond us, completely outside the cosmos, transcendent from our perspective. Modern physics and quantum mechanics have demonstrated the scientific likelihood that there are other dimensions, other realms of existence where laws like gravity and the speed of light may not even apply. More and more, modern physical science reads like science fiction, and the evolutionists on the life science side of things cringe. Einstein's theory started a ball rolling that has actually resulted in the scientific believability of a place like heaven just beyond our reach. I'm not making this up. You can now read about heaven in books on quantum physics. This is actually one of the hottest topics in the area of physical science. One thing is for sure, however you want to describe the where of heaven, it is definitely outside the box. Heaven is up in an otherworldly kind of way. Now, as is pointed out in the Truth Project videos, if you're an adult in your 30s or 40s and you attended public school, you have very likely seen the so-called educational video um, series titled The Cosmos. I do remember watching this in science class, but whether you remember it or not, yes, we did have video when I was in high school, Chase. Um, And I remember watching it in science class, but whether you remember it or not, most of us have heard the idea that Carl Sagan declared to millions of school kids over a period of over a decade when he opened his video series with these words, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. What a claim. The cosmos, of course, is just another word for the universe or all the universes that we think might exist. As Dr. Sagan tells us uh, that, that this physical world Uh, This this one we can see and measure and touch is all there is, or ever was, or ever shall be. But how could anyone consider this to be a statement of science? It is not, of course. This is a statement of philosophy. This is simply the worldview of a person making the statement. Only he's making the statement as if it were scientific fact, which only weakens the credibility of true science. Now, let's see. When has that ever happened um, in recent years? Constantly, right? Anyway, I've always wanted to ask Dr. Sagan how he could know such a thing with certainty. Where does this conviction that it is not possible for anything to exist outside of this cosmos come from? How exactly has he or anyone else scientifically proven that what we can observe must be all there is? In truth, Dr. Sagan and other naturalistic humanists have a strong belief that the matter of the universe, that which can be examined and tested by science, the stuff must be all that exists. And we, as pieces of stuff in the box, 
are only trying to figure out truths about the rest of the stuff in the box. There is nothing else, nothing supernatural, nothing spiritual, no angels, no God, no heaven, and conveniently, no hell. There's absolutely nothing beyond this meager attempt at survival of the fittest. In this cosmology, all that exists is the matter that I can experience and study with my five senses. And so my emotions, my consciousness, my free will, my sense of purpose, etc., are actually only basic instincts which somehow benefit my survival. Love, for example, is a chemical and electrical impulse with no more meaning than the mating drive of a prairie chicken, or perhaps the allure of a crumb of food to a cockroach. There is no higher calling or higher reason or higher existence. There is only stuff. And the stuff defines the box. Why? Because if it is not the stuff in the box, it simply must not exist. To the point, this line of thinking leaves absolutely no room for the hope of heaven. Because the very definition of heaven is that it is not in the box. Heaven is absolutely extra-boxical. Heaven is something outside the box, above the box, further and deeper and wider and higher than the box. Since it existed before the box, and indeed from out of heaven, the box, with all its laws, limits, and boundaries, was created. See, the biblical heaven transcends the box and may even be completely different than the box, as different as you are from any box you might create. But this is precisely why naturalists reject it, because being outside the box, beyond their ability to prove it or study it, Heaven must not exist. Now, I'm tempted to go on making a case for heaven today, the case for the extra-boxical, to talk about how we can logically conclude that there absolutely must be a realm outside the box from which the box came, but that's another sermon. What we need to understand today is that the box we are part of is not heaven. Heaven is up. This is not heaven. This is not even some part of heaven. No, heaven is way, way up from here. And that's important to remember because no matter how much we wish it could be, heaven will never be found on this earth. Not on this earth, no. The Bible actually teaches that wherever we go in this creation, heaven will always be just out of reach. We're not there yet because heaven is always up. Now, here's the second truth today. The Bible teaches that heaven is a real place with real people. Not only after Jesus returns at the resurrection of the dead, but right now, heaven is a real place with real people. This is a good spot to point out that the biblical picture of heaven is not anything like what Hollywood portrays. Go figure, right? First of all, heaven isn't in the clouds or floating around in some kind of non-physical, airy space. That's not what biblical pictures show us at all. Also, please understand that people never become angels with or without harps or wings. That's a myth not found in the Bible. I seriously doubt that we'll be floating around ethereally in heaven rather than using our legs, which were made for walking. Again, these flighty ideas about today's heaven are not found in the Bible. Similarly, heaven is not likely all white and stark, nor is it empty and boring. Similarly, God does not look like Morgan Freeman 
or especially George Burns. Above all, heaven isn't a place anyone would ever want to come back from for any reason whatsoever. And believe me, there's not going to be any food or experience you're going to miss while you're there, not even Chick-fil-A. So, I have said it, but how can we know from Scripture that heaven is a real place with real people even right now? Well, let's look quickly at a couple of scenes from the life of Jesus. Once when Jesus was being questioned by religious leaders who were trying to trip him up, he was asked about marriage in heaven. He was asked if people had been married more than once, which spouse would they get in heaven? This is found in Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus answered by explaining that in heaven, we will not be married at all. He explained that marriage is an earthly institution. Now, by the way, Jesus did not say we couldn't potentially have a special relationship with the person to whom we were married, did he? No, he just said we wouldn't be married. Why not married? Because in heaven, our marriage will actually be with Jesus, who the Bible calls our bridegroom, and the true church is pictured as his bride. The Bible says heaven will be a celebration of our marriage with Christ. In other words, our relationship to Jesus will be our closest relationship, and all of our other relationships will be secondary. How can that be? How can Jesus have that kind of relationship with so many people? I can only say because he is God, and we're talking about heaven where the rules will be different. Again, we can only try to imagine, but this much is clear. In heaven, we will have relationships with people, but our closest relationship will be with Jesus Christ. We will enter heaven as his bride. In fact, according to Scripture, your Christian marriage on earth is intended to give the world a taste of the relationship we can all have with Christ in heaven. That's why marriage is so important. How's your witness in this regard, by the way? How's your testimony to the lost world when it comes to your marriage? Some of you might need to work on that. But back to the point, what can we learn about the realness of heaven and what Jesus said? What can we understand about the heaven of today? First, understand that one of the groups represented by the questioners were known as Sadducees, and these Sadducees did not even believe in a real heaven where God's children would live for eternity at all. No, they had decided heaven was wishful thinking. Jesus took this opportunity to explain to them their error. He said, you are greatly mistaken. And then he explained that even right at the very moment, at that very moment, not only in the future at the return and the resurrection of the dead, but even at that very moment, their spiritual forefathers were living in heaven with God. Jesus said, Matthew 22, verse 31. Haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. Jesus was pointing out that God had revert, referred to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense even after they had died. He's saying these men are alive not dead, because at this very moment they are residing in heaven with God. Jesus says, you ask about marriage after the kingdom comes. So first let me correct your thinking about the current status of the kingdom, because you can't understand about marriage in heaven if you don't even realize that heaven for people of faith has already begun. He's saying your question shows you don't even get it that your spiritual forebears are with God in heaven as we speak. Haven't you read the scriptures? Says Jesus. I'd say the same to those today who preach soul sleep, by the way. But that's a rabbit I won't chase any further. 
Now, the second scene I'll point out where we can see heaven as a real place with real people, even right now, has been referred to as the transfiguration of Christ. Let's quickly read about it. Matthew tells us, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking... A bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. From this scene, we can make several observations. First, we can see that Moses and Elijah are still Moses and Elijah. Let that sink in. Moses and Elijah haven't been absorbed into some force-like orb of energy, as in panentheism. They have not become completely different people. They maintain their conscious identities and even their earthly names. And notice that Moses and Elijah aren't coming from some kind of spiritual limbo land without consciousness waiting for the resurrection, no. Although their earthly bodies are still in the grave, at this point in this story, they're very much alive. And we can see, as we can see in the fact that even, uh, they even know Jesus enough to have a conversation. They're just chatting with Jesus. Are you kidding me? Moses and Elijah are here in this moment having just a little talk with Jesus. I'm not a bass. Bevan, you're a bass, aren't you? I, literally, when I thought about that, I thought we need to put together a, a, a quartet like the old days. Wouldn't that be fun? Connor can do the high tenor. I'll do the regular tenor. We need a lead singer, and we got Bevan for bass. We got this. It's going to be awesome. Just out of curiosity, a quick survey. How many, how many of you know, just a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our troubles. We will hear of not as many as I would have thought. Okay, some of you, I'm so old. <laughs> it's fun. So Moses and Elijah are here in this moment chatting with Jesus on the hillside using real words like with mouths that talk, even as they stand there in some kind of identifiable form. Plus, it would seem that wherever they're coming from is the place where God is coming from, since it's almost as if He comes with them. This all reads almost like there's an elevator coming down from heaven, and it has just opened up. Apparently, though the disciples can't see Him, other than a cloud, God the Father has come down with Moses and Elijah, even to the point that he uncharacteristically speaks to them with an audible voice. This was a moment when heaven came down to earth. And notice that two human beings, dead for centuries, came along. Again, my point is that not only later, but even now, heaven is a real place with real people. You can count on that, friends. Some of you have lost someone dear to you. Listen, if they knew Jesus, they're in a real place called heaven right now. By the way, this ought to motivate our evangelism, our outreach. When people die, their soul goes somewhere. We need to do what we can to see that they go to be with Jesus in heaven. And again, heaven is not just a someday thing, but a today thing. That takes me to the next point, which is this. Heaven is God's home now and our home later. 
There are at least 54 verses of Scripture throughout the Bible that refer to heaven as the place where God dwells. Jesus constantly referred to God as my Father in heaven. Jesus went to great lengths to teach us to think of a heaven as the place where God lives. Of course, the Bible also teaches that God can be everywhere and that Jesus was God in the flesh, having come down to earth from heaven. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We also know that the Holy Spirit was poured out on this earth even as Jesus ascended and that now he lives inside those who believe. That's all true, and yet we still ought to understand that God does not currently make his primary residence on this earth. I think that's an important truth to remember. Our Father God is in heaven. Jesus, too. This matters in various ways. For example, God is not an earthly force connecting the trees, the rock, whatever else, the air, the water. No. He created those things, but He does not live in them. God Himself can currently be found in a place called heaven. That is where He lives. Again, by extension, through the Holy Spirit, He is also with us. But I do believe when you're talking to God, for example, you should at least often think of Him on His throne in heaven. Why would I say that? Well, because this is how Jesus taught us to pray, for one thing, to our Father in heaven. But also because throughout the Bible, we see God coming down temporarily when He chooses, not staying down in any kind of permanent sense. Now, I know this can be very confusing, And that is because God is way too big and transcendent for us to completely understand exactly where He is. But what I want to get across today is that in the Bible, we see the person of God dwelling in a place, and that place is primarily heaven. In the Bible, people were either brought up to heaven to meet with God, people like Isaiah and even Paul and others, or when God wanted to communicate with people down here, He sent messengers angels and prophets and His Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And yes, it's also important to remember the Spirit is with us. But why didn't the whole person of God, or perhaps God the Father, always simply come down Himself? Why is God always pictured in the Bible as a person who abides in heaven? I don't fully know why. But I think realizing this truth must be important for some reason. And possibly it's important because somehow there is more of God to come down. As believers, we say this earth is not our home. Well, this earth is definitely not God's home. Someday that will change when Christ returns and creates a new heaven and earth. But again, I'm talking about today's heaven, and today's heaven is where God lives. Now, maybe I can save myself an email by mentioning once more that, of course, I do believe in the omnipresence of God. But sometimes I think the point, that point, is overemphasized. I do. Often in Scripture, God is simply not presented as being everywhere all the time. He's not. You can read the Old Testament, plenty in the New, and find where God is not pictured as so superfluous as to be right in the middle of everything all the time. We can overemphasize omnipresence until it borders on New Age philosophy, which basically sort of sees God as so everywhere and so everything that He becomes nothing. 
Panentheism, another word for this, sees God in all things and all things as sort of on their way to becoming God. Most of the Eastern religions embrace some form of this idea. But personally, I don't find a whole lot of hope in a concept of God or heaven that equals the eventual end of my own identity. And besides, I don't get to look forward to heaven if it's already supposed to be here, you know. And everything is God and God is everywhere and so everything be like heaven because God lives in heaven. No, that really can kind of mess you up. If God is just everywhere and everything all the time and his home is already here, then what of this place called heaven where I hope to go when I die. And why should I believe it's any better? But it is better, you see. You know why? Because God lives there. The Bible teaches that God's home is in heaven, and that is precisely the reason that I want to go there someday. Jesus told those who would follow him that we have a dream house to look forward to, remember? He basically said this house is not a typical cookie-cutter home in a suburb subdivision. Not a home built by Holt or Lennar or D.R. Horton. But rather, God is building a home for us himself. Yes, the Bible says when we die, we'll go to be with the Lord at his place where he lives. In something like a mansion with many rooms built on streets of gold in a place called heaven. Jesus said, don't be troubled. You trust God, now trust in me. There are many rooms in my Father's home, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If this were not so, I would tell you plainly. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Heaven is God's home. One day we'll go there to live with Him. That's the heaven promised in the Bible. That's the heaven even of today, I do believe Jesus has already prepared a place for us there, even today. He already ascended, and he's already made a place so that when our time on earth is done, that's where we go. But I'm going to move outside of my self-imposed limit for just a moment to tell you also that it gets even better when Christ returns. As the Apostle John also told us, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a beautiful bride prepared for her husband, heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, the home of God is now among his people. That's what's coming. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will remove all of their sorrows and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain for the old world and its evils are gone forever. See, that passage is about the time when Christ returns. That's not a description of the heaven of today but of someday. And it's even better than the heaven of today. But let me circle back because the heaven of today is pretty awesome too. What else can we expect if we go to heaven today? The apostle Paul tells us, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, when we die and leave these bodies, we will have a home in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies. Amen. And we long for the day when we will put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we will not be spirits without bodies, but we will put on new heavenly bodies. Our dying bodies make us groan inside, but it's not that we want to die and have no bodies at all. We want to slip into our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by everlasting life. God himself has prepared us for this and as a guarantee has given us the Holy Spirit. I hope you find God's word encouraging today. I really do. The hope of heaven is supposed to encourage us. And by encourage, I mean fill us with courage. I feel like somewhere some of us have gotten the idea that we shouldn't spend too much time thinking about heaven. 
We've all heard the saying, the pers this person, that person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I suppose there's a point where that can be true in some ways, but C.S. Lewis said the opposite, and I agree with him. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next world. I completely agree with that statement. The Bible says, let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't spend your time worrying about things down here. Oh, mercy. Anybody else challenged by that today? And so I would say dream on. Dream about your home in heaven. That's exactly what Abraham and the other fathers of our faith were praised for in Hebrews 11. We studied recently. I'm not going to read it again today. Remember at the end of Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, and confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God, only because Abraham had the faith to look forward to his dream home, was he able to completely follow God on earth. And the same is said about all the other people of faith mentioned in that same chapter. Um, back in, it's in verse 13 of chapter 11. It says they were just foreigners and nomads here on earth. It says they were looking forward to a country they could call their own. At the end it says, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a heavenly city for them. Fellow believers, our future home is heaven where God lives. And believing that for real will change your life. Let's review. First, heaven is up. It is extraboxical. Second, heaven is a real place with real people. Third, heaven is God's home now in our home later when we die, if we know him. Finally, number four, heaven is where the big party is. As we've all heard, pop culture actually believes that hell is going to be one big party. The logic is that when you look at all the people who are supposedly going there, how could it not be? And you know, my tendency would be to say that nobody really believes this. But I'm starting to think some people actually do believe something like this. I think even some who figure hell might actually list, exist have convinced themselves it can't really, really be all that bad. Since most of their friends and family are going there. This is what we do. It can't be that bad. It's not that bad. People just trying to scare you. Maybe I'll preach a sermon on hell soon, and won't that be fun? But for today, I'm going to go ahead and stay on subject and keep the point in the positive. Listen, heaven is where the big party is. Heaven is going to be so awesome, you cannot imagine it. I like the song, I can only imagine, and I have sung it many, many times. And quite a few funerals. It's a good song, but I'm just going to go ahead and say, no, you can't. You can't even imagine. It's fun to try, but you can't imagine how awesome heaven is going to be. And the Bible says, no, as the Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The Bible talks about heaven as a place of feasting and celebration, which is beyond description and beyond imagination. I believe there will be colors we've never seen, wonderful smells we've never smelled, tastes no earthly chef could ever create. I believe there'll be pleasures we have never even longed for. Yes, pleasures that make our earthly ones seem as mundane and fleeting as they really are. Not even pleasurable by comparison. Someone may not even like hearing about pleasure being associated with heaven, but that is because earthly pleasures are gross when compared to heaven. 
where pleasure is going to come directly from God. Psalm 1611 says, you've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What will heaven be like? Well, eternal pleasures at the right hand of an all-powerful and all-loving God sounds pretty good to me. I don't know what it means, but I'm into it, okay? Whatever that is, that allows us to sound yes. Yes, please. That sounds great. What will it be like? You've probably heard me say before that I personally believe our most biblical picture of heaven might be the Garden of Eden. The Bible says the Garden was a paradise before sin. Eden was created as a perfect place for the people who God made in His image. There was no suffering, no death, no disease, no decay, no pain, no killing, no difficulty. It was all beauty and peace and joy and contentment. Adam, Adam and Eve were made to last forever. They would have never aged, and they would have never died had it not been for sin. The Bible says when they ate the forbidden fruit, they incurred the consequences which God had promised beforehand, that they would begin to die and keep on dying, and eventually they would be dead. We all know what that's like. But before that, they were not dying, and they would not have died. They were perfectly fashioned and formed, put in a place where they could completely enjoy creation, each other, and God, a place God said was very good. It was all good. Paradise. In case anyone forgot, Jesus actually did refer to heaven as paradise. And after all, he'd been there, so that means he knew what he was talking about. Jesus called heaven paradise, telling the man who placed his faith in him on the nearby cross, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise today. I mean, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? Paradise today. Paul referred to heaven as a reward and a prize. He said he was straining for it, striving for it, looking forward to it, and that no suffering or difficulty on earth was even worth mentioning in comparison to the glory that heaven would bring. I love what one old preacher said about longing for heaven. He said, I'm homesick for heaven. It's the hope of dying that's kept me alive for this long. You might need to have a few years on you to fully understand that one, but you know, a sad thing has happened, and I think this has happened mostly during my lifetime. I don't know whether this is something to blame on the devil or just the deceptiveness of the human heart, but somehow, some way, people have accepted a picture of heaven that is a bit lackluster, an image that makes some think hell will be a party by comparison. You know, the generation of believers before us had no problems looking forward to heaven. All the songs were about it, most of the books, the preaching. Indeed, back then, heaven was at the heart of what we call the gospel. But somehow through Hollywood or through New Age philosophies that have crept into Christianity here and there, heaven has lost some of its appeal in many minds. Well, sure, heaven's still a place most folks want to go, give them the alternative, but there's kind of an uncertainty about whether it's going to be really all that great. Have you noticed this? Some people think heaven's going to be one big worship service. And frankly, that doesn't sound like paradise. Somebody says, well, as, as long as it's hymns. I know you. I know you're out there. I know. I know. Somebody else says, as long as we can just sing oceans in a trance-like state for hours on end. No. 
I mean, come on, an, an hour or so for a worship service is fine, but after that, we're ready to go to lunch. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. Well, let's just deal with this right now. If your picture of heaven is one long church service, hit the delete button and empty the virtual trash can because your picture is not even close. Nobody on earth can really picture heaven, but when I try, it's all about the outdoors. Like I said, Garden of Eden, it's about the, the stuff God made, not the stuff man made, you know. I picture the most beautiful places on earth, and I just figure it's immeasurably better than that. Now, for you, maybe heaven's a mall as big as Texas where everything's 100% off. I, I don't know I mean, what it is. Um, but since the Bible says heaven is better than anything we can begin to envision, I don't think it hurts to try to picture the best thing you can and then just know that you aren't even close. We aren't even close. Let's try an object lesson today. How many of you like candy? If you don't raise your hand, I'm going to come slap you. Okay, you like candy. Everybody likes candy, right? So we'll let candy represent pleasure uh, or sort of what we might think of as a party or something really, really desirable in, the, in a heavenly kind of way. And sure, when you live within God's parameters, you can find a taste of heaven on earth because there is still a remnant of the paradise that this place was before sin. And there are still some really good things to experience. So again, we can get a taste of heaven, enough to actually be able to look forward to something even better in God's eternal home. So, using candy as an example. Some of you wondered what this was here for. So, we're going to let this Skittle represent um, all of the good things about life on earth. I mean, the blessings of God on earth, the things that we can think about and say, well, that's, I want heaven to be like that, all the better. Those kinds of things. So, this represents that. So, I'm going to throw this out there. There's your blessings on earth. Now, if that is a representation of what we get from uh, this earth and, and the blessings and the good things about life on earth, I want to go ahead and, and show you what would represent uh, the blessings of heaven. It's just a little bit better. Does that communicate? Showers of blessing. Yes. So, again, always remember we barely, barely get a taste of heaven in this life. By the way, you can thank my family. I was going to do raw Skittles without the packages. <laughs> I really wanted to bad. I just wanted them to go everywhere. And my wife said, hun, I don't think you should do that. <laughs> so I did the packages. Oh, yes, yes, yes. She wanted you to actually get to eat them, not, you know, have to pick them up off the floor. Nobody's going to remember anything from this sermon except what just happened. I, I know that. So um, let me wrap this up. The Bible says that God wants all people to receive salvation through his son so that they can spend eternity with him in heaven. He loves all those who he created in his image. He believes he I believe he desires all of them to be saved. That said, God also knows that many will not come to him. Not all people receive his gift of salvation. Sadly, most won't. The road is narrow. And I believe this absolutely breaks God's heart. So, what if there are people here this morning who have not yet been saved? What if there are people who 
are not yet actually on their way to heaven by faith and through the grace of Christ. Let me simply ask, with heaven in the balance, why wouldn't you want to turn to Jesus? And somebody says, what, is God trying to bribe me? No, He just would prefer that you receive His gift than not. Look, heaven is not a bad incentive, is it? Heaven sweetens the deal more than just a little. And as a preacher, if I were not supposed to use that to say, come on, man, say yes to God, then why in the world would the Bible tell us so much about it? Yes, heaven is an incentive, a gift offered to all. And so, yes, it's okay to let that motivate you. God loves you so much, He isn't afraid to dangle the carrot, okay? He's holding up the bonus of heaven to help move you over the line today. God isn't keeping heaven a secret. It's not a secret. His word is filled with things about it. He wants you to know about it because he wants you to join him there someday. He made you in his image and he wants you in his family. Jesus made the way. He's the door. All you have to do is repent and receive his gifts of salvation. It's a faith decision. And yes, repentant faith is required. You have to be willing to turn from your self-sufficiency and your sin, asking Christ to come into your life, to cleanse you, become your Lord. If anybody wants to make that kind of decision today, you can pray. That's how we communicate with God. You can say yes to God. If your prayer is real, you'll be saved and headed for heaven when you die. If it isn't real, you won't. I do hope you'll let me know if today was the day you decided to say yes to what God is offering. Would you pray with me right now? Father, for that one or two or 12 that may be here today that have never said yes officially and for real in a repentant kind of way that says, okay, I'm not doing this as just sort of a just in case, but I want to give my life to you. I want to turn from me and turn to you. I want to walk your path all the way into the gates of glory. And I just want to be changed by you. I hope somebody's praying that with me. Just say yes to God. Yes, take my life. Yes, I want to be in heaven with you when I die. Yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again, that he has the power to give me eternal life. And I pray that would be applied to me today. I just believe, I'm believing, I'm putting it all in on you. I'm trusting in you to save me and to, and to give me heaven, yes, when I die. Please, yes, and thank you. Father, for the rest of us, um, I pray that you would use biblical images of heaven to motivate us, that we would be like Paul and strive for it and walk in a manner worthy of our calling because we are keeping the end in mind. No matter what we go through on this earth, it's nothing compared to eternity in paradise with you. Lord, I, I just I thank you that you've given, you wouldn't have had to do this. You have no obligation to do any of this. It's all because of love. 
We're so unworthy. You could have just wiped it all out, but you didn't. You loved us too much. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, whosoever in the King James would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Where's that going to happen? In heaven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that I get to look forward to this. What can I not face in life if I really believe this, and I do? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.